So let's turn in our Bibles. We're in the book of Romans. We're back there, as you know. We started back last Sunday. We're in the book of Romans, and um, we'll begin reading verse 14, and we'll read through verse 29. Let's stand in honor of God's Word together. Great passage, great passage. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, man's effort, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Moses, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her whom was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in this very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. And as as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You may be seated. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray, Lord, as... As we have bowed in your presence, if we have sung of your glory and your will, oh, how our hearts have rejoiced in you. And dear Lord, as we have read this this wonderful passage of Scripture that is often neglected and passed over in our churches, Lord, we see your glory. We see your power. We see your sovereignty, and we thank you for that. And we pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, that you will just speak to our hearts 
Lord, lead us in the direction you would have us to go. Lord, help us to see you in all your fullness, all of your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You know, as Christians, we often are guilty of putting God in a box. We are. We're often guilty of putting God in a box. I like to call it boxing God in. Boxing God in, putting God in a box. By that I mean we often try to fit God into a certain pattern we have made for Him. You know, we think God ought to look like this, and we make God like that. We make God into the God we feel comfortable with, that meets our needs, that meets our expectations, our beliefs, our desires. And when we do that, we box God in. We really do. We put Him in a box and miss the full truth of who God really is. For example, if you grow up believing that God is love, and God is a God of love, no question about it, that's the essence of who He is. God is love, but fail to recognize that He is also a God of wrath, fail to realize that He is also a God of judgment, what you do is really you're putting God in a box, and you'll end up with a distorted view of who God is. The only place we can really get a true view of God is the Scriptures. That's where we find a true view of God. And that's where Paul takes us in this passage today. What he does is is this. He tears down and breaks in pieces these boxes we put God in so that we can see God in all of His fullness and all of His glory as He really is. Now, let me give you a heads up. Some of you will not like what Paul has to say here. Because the God he describes here hasn't been a part of your box. And some of you will even resist what Paul has to say because the God he describes here hasn't been part of your box. But if you are really honest with yourself, you will not be able to doubt and deny what Paul has to say here in Romans chapter 9. Last Sunday, we saw God's sovereignty in action. Today, we see God's sovereignty illustrated. Last Sunday, we saw how God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to be His chosen people. We saw how God chose Isaac to be the promised son through whom the Messiah would come. And last Sunday, we saw... Jacob, that he was chosen off over Esau. We saw that God's choice is not based on character or behavior. God didn't choose Israel because she was the brightest, the biggest, and the best of all the nations of the world. No, Moses told the children of Israel this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. He says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number, notice that, not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the people, but it is because the Lord loves you. 
God didn't choose Jacob because he was an honest and upright and outstanding young man. On the contrary, he was a deceiver, he was a trickster, he was a cheater, and he was a liar. In fact, God chose Jacob even before he and Esau were even born, before they had done either good or bad. Yet God chose Jacob and he passed over Esau. So the question is simply, why? Why? Why um, did God choose the way he did? What is the basis upon which God chooses? What is the basis upon which God chooses? Well, we've already seen that it's not works, it's not character, it's not behavior. If it's not works, what is it? If it's not behavior, what is it? If it's not character, what is it? Well, Paul tells us right here in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, he gives us the answer. Now again, let me just say, it might not be the answer you're looking for. It might not be the answer you want to hear, but it's God's answer. And it's the answer that we must accept and believe. Now, why does God choose the way he does? Well, the answer is because God is God and he has the right to choose the way he sees fit. In other words, God is God. God is the sovereign God and he can do exactly like he wishes. So, buckle your seatbelt, okay? Buckle your seatbelt. Get ready to have the box you have put God in torn wide open. Now, Paul begins with these words in verse 14. He says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, let me just paraphrase what Paul is saying. Is God being unfair? Is God being unfair? That's what, that's what people were saying in Paul's day. That's the objection some people were making to God's sovereignty. God is being unfair to choose one over the other. To choose Israel and not the other nations. To choose Isaac and, and, and not Ishmael. To choose Jacob and to pass over Esau. Isn't God being unfair to do that? And Paul's answer is a sharp, by no means, verse 14, no, absolutely not. In fact, Paul says it is absurd to accuse a righteous God of being unfair. In fact, it's a contradiction in terms. Now, I don't want to do that, and I don't believe you want to do that either. Now, what Paul does next is he goes straight to the Word of God. He goes straight to the Scriptures, and he quotes, he quotes Exodus thirty-three nineteen to show that God isn't being unfair in how he chooses. Look with me at verse 15 again. For he is talking about God. For he, God says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, I want you to look at um, the word mercy. Mercy is not an obligation of God. Mercy is not something God is obligated to give. In fact, the Bible is clear that mercy as well as grace is the gift of God. And Paul is saying God isn't being unfair to show mercy to some and not to others because God is not 
obligated to show mercy to anyone. In other words, mercy is totally undeserved. Nobody deserves God's mercy. That includes you and that includes me. In fact, um, if I got what I deserved, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be hell. Separation from God for all eternity. That's what we all deserve. If I got what I, if Norman Rogers got what he deserved, I would bust hell wide open. And so would you. We've already seen in the book of Romans, in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That simply means we, we all fall short of God's righteous standard in order to get to heaven. None of us can get there on our own. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the wages, the payment we deserve for our sin is spiritual death, to be separated from God for all eternity. And then in Romans 3.10, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, now that includes you, and that includes me, that includes everybody, all of us. Now, what does this tell us? We're all hell-deserving sinners. That's what it tells us. God owes mercy to no one, not to Moses, not to Pharaoh, not to you, not to me. Mercy is a gift that God gives freely to whomever he wills, to all, to some, or to none. It's entirely God's choice, his sovereign choice. Now, that's what God's word says. And, you know, I'm so glad it isn't our job to have it all figured out. It's not our job to understand it all, because I can't. It's our job to believe what God says and to simply accept it. Now, Paul goes on in verse 16, okay? He says, so then, this is kind of his conclusion to this part. He says, so then, God's sovereign choice His salvation depends not on human will or exertion, that is, works, but on God who has mercy. Now, Paul couldn't be any clearer. Salvation is not about us. It's not about our works. Our works have absolutely nothing to do with it. It's all about God's grace and God's mercy. It has nothing at all to do with us. It's all of God. Now, Moses is an example of God's sovereign choice. Now, let's think about Moses for a, minute, for a minute. It talks about Moses here. Who was Moses when God chose him? Who was Moses when God chose him? You know, you might have a distorted view of that. Because the Bible is clear that Moses was a criminal when God chose him. He was a murderer. In a fit of rage, he killed an Egyptian. God didn't look at that in favor, not at all. He was a fugitive of justice who was hiding, hiding from the law, you might say, for 40 years on the backside of the desert, okay? Yet what God did, he picked him and made him his spokesman to go to the most powerful man in all the world at that time, Pharaoh, and say, let my people go. Was there anything admirable about Moses when God chose him? No. Was there anything special about Moses when God chose him? No. 
He was an insecure man, a doubtful man, who tried his best to talk God out of sending him to Egypt. He, was, he had a stammering tongue. He was slow to speech. You know, you would think that Moses would have been the last person on God's list to choose. But he chose Moses. He chose insecure, doubting, stammering Moses to deliver Israel from captivity in Egypt. Why did God choose Moses? Because it was his choice. It was his choice. Because he wanted to. Period. Argument over. Next, Paul turns to the Pharaoh, okay, to demonstrate his sovereign choice. Pharaoh, quite a different man. In verse 17, it says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. What does that mean? I chose you that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God chose Pharaoh for an entirely different purpose than he chose Moses. God chose Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of slavery. Why did God choose Pharaoh? Again, look at verse 17. Look at the middle of the verse. I want to point out the middle of the verse in verse 17. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? To demonstrate his power and his glory. It was God's awesome power that delivered Israel from Pharaoh's grip. And as a result... God's name was proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You know, I just think about the story when the children of Israel, you know, when they got into the promised land and the spies went to Rahab who had been a harlot. And it's very obvious that she had already been saved when they got there. And they asked her, you know, why do you believe in the God of Israel? She said, oh, we've heard the story. We've heard all that God had done, all that Yahweh had done, that he brought Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Don't see, God's name was proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And he did it through this, this evil man, um, Pharaoh. God raised him up for that very purpose, to show off his almighty power and to glorify his name in all the earth. Verse 18 So then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's think about that verse just for a minute. So then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Wow, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart? You know, that didn't sound like God. You know? What does this mean? Does it mean that Pharaoh was this great guy? I mean, he was just this wonderful king in Egypt. And and he was just doing what kings do. He was just doing his best for his own people. But God came along and turned his heart hard and cold against God. And forced him to do what he didn't want to do. Not to let the children of Israel go. No, it wasn't anything like that at all. What does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? You know, I, I've done a lot of work on this sermon. And I turned to some of the, 
the Bible teachers and some of the commentaries. And this is what Timothy Keller, one of my favorite commentators, says in his commentary on the book of Romans. I think he gives us some help here. Why does it mean that, that God hardened his heart? Keller says, when God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. You get it? When God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. And then Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite Bible teachers, who's now with the Lord, he puts it this way. God gave Pharaoh opportunity to repent. But instead, Pharaoh resisted and God hardened and uh, but Pharaoh resisted God and hardened his own heart. The fault lay not with God, but Pharaoh. The same sunlight that melts the ice also hardens the clay. God was not unrighteous in dealing with Pharaoh because he gave him many opportunities to repent and believe. So it's not God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God let him just simply go his own way, the way he wanted to go. Now, in verse 19, Paul comes to the last big objection that people raise against God's sovereignty. And that's in verse 19. You will say to me then, Okay, Paul is just raising this objection that people were making in his day and people who make the same today. Why does he, that is God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, uh, well, why does God find fault? I mean, who can resist the will of God? Don't say, I believe the objection can be kind of summarized like this. God uses people however he wishes to accomplish his own purpose. We know that that's true. Like he did for Moses to do good and like Pharaoh to do evil. How can God turn around and blame man when they do evil? Who can resist God's will? Isn't God being unfair? Well, Paul answers this charge in verses 20 through 29. Okay? And the first thing he says is this, don't talk back to God. I love it. That's exactly what he says. Don't talk back to God. Look at verse 20. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded, that's us, say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Now let me ask you a question. Did your mom and dad ever say this to you when... They were doing something you just didn't like. And you said, no fair. Did they ever say this to you? Don't talk back to me. Raise your hand if that's ever been your case. It's certainly my case. Don't talk back to me. You know, that's what God is saying here. That's what, that's what God is saying here. Paul is saying, well, who do you think you are to talk back to God? Why? Because God is God. He is the authority. And what he says goes. And we're not to question him. So, don't talk back to God. You know, I I have to 
I have to say that to myself a lot because there's a lot of things I don't understand about God and his word. As we saw last time, you know, there's a lot I don't understand about God's sovereignty and God's free, man's free will and how it all fits together. You know, but I believe both because both are taught in the scriptures. And who am I to talk back to God? I'm not going to do that. Secondly, God is the potter and we're the clay. God is the potter. And we're the clay. Look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, does the potter have the right to do with the clay what he wants to? And of course, the answer is yes. It's talking about the earthly potter. When we were in Saluda, we went to Edgefield and they had a real potter there and we were able to watch him make Beautiful um, vessels and all of this out of the clay. It was amazing. And the question is, does the potter have the right to do with the clay as he wishes? Doesn't the potter have the right to take a lump of clay and divide it? And out of one half make a beautiful vase for the living room? And with the other half make a wash pot for the kitchen? And the answer is absolutely yes. No one tells the potter what to do with the clay. Now, if an earthly potter exercises sovereignty over his clay, certainly God has the right to exercise his authority over his creation. That's what he's saying. Let God be God. Don't box God. Let, just let God be God. It doesn't matter if you understand it and fit it all together. Just let God be God. That's what he's saying. And then thirdly, Thirdly, God has his purposes for doing what he does that sometimes we just don't see. See, God has purposes, and sometimes we just don't see those purposes. Sometimes we just don't understand things about God, his sovereignty, and all of this, because God has purposes that we don't understand. We're too finite to understand those purposes. Now, Paul mentions two purposes here. Two purposes. The first purpose is to display the riches of his glory by saving a people for himself. That's, that's the first purpose. To display the riches of God's glory by saving a people for himself. Now, I want you to notice that what if statement in verse 22 and 24 really through, to, through 24. Paul says, What if God, what if God, desiring to show his wrath to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, please stay with me. This is so important for us to understand. It's so important for us to understand what Paul is saying here and also what Paul is not saying here. First, Paul is not saying that God has prepared the vessels of wrath, that is, lost people for destruction. He's not saying that. 
You know, I, I just wish I had a I had an opportunity to really spend time showing you that in, in the original language. You know, when, when it speaks of you know prepared for destruction, it, it's using the middle voice. And I know this is just foreign to you, but it means that they bring this wrath upon themselves. They bring this destruction upon themselves. God doesn't. The lost have prepared themselves for destruction by not believing the gospel. And yet God has shown amazing patience towards them, giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be saved. Now that's what God is not saying. That he has prepared. No, they prepared themselves. My friend, if you're here today and you're lost and you don't have Christ, you are preparing yourself for destruction, separation from God. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that God has prepared vessels of mercy, those who are saved by the grace of God for glory. God has prepared before the foundation, beforehand, it says, the vessels of mercy for glory. Again, I went to the commentators. Griffith Thomas, Griffith Thomas, one of the early um, British theologians, he writes, Men fit themselves for hell, but it is God that fits men for heaven. I like that. Warren Wiersbe writes, God prepares men for glory, but sinners prepare themselves for judgment. Another great theologian, John Stott, says, If anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anyone is saved, the credit goes to God. And how true that is. Pastor James Kennedy, who now is with the Lord, he offers a helpful illustration how God's sovereignty and man's free will fits together. And I want to share that illustration with you from Pastor James Kennedy. He says, there are five people who are planning to hold up a bank. Okay? They are friends of mine. I find out about it and plead with them. I beg them not to do it. Finally, they push me out of the way and they start out. I tackle one of the men and wrestle him to the ground. The others go ahead, rob the bank, a guard is killed, and they are captured, convicted, and sentenced to die. The one man who was not involved in the robbery goes free. Now I ask you this question. Whose fault was it that the other people died? Now the other man who is walking around free, can he say, because my heart is so good, I am free? The only reason that he is free is because of me. Because I restrained him. So do those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus we say that salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. Wow, that's God's purpose, folks. And all of this that we're talking about, that's, that's God's sovereign purpose, you know, to... To save a people for himself. But secondly, it's God's purpose to gather believing Gentiles and a remnant of believing Jews into his one body, 
this new body we call the church. Now, Paul quotes from the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23, and also back at chapter 1, verse 10. But we read the quotation in verses 25 through 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And to her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, here Paul quotes Hosea's prophecy and applies it to what God is now doing to Gentiles. And what is God doing? He's saving them. Let's look at it again. Look at verse 25 again. Those who were not my people, he's talking about the Gentiles, he's talking about us, <laughs> I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, that is Gentiles, I will call beloved. Look again at verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they, Gentiles, will be called sons of the living God. So what, 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 what Paul is saying is God's, God saving Gentiles and, and bringing them into his family. Next, Paul quotes Isaiah's prophecy to say what God is doing now for Jews. He is saving a remnant who believe in Jesus. You know, some of the strongest Christians I've ever met were Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says that there's going to be a national salvation of the Jewish people at the end of the tribulation. In fact, Paul is going to say in, in Romans right here, he says, And all Israel shall be saved. Speaking of this national salvation that's going to take place later on in the future. But a remnant of Jews are being saved today. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Isaiah. You know, one of the magazines that I subscribe to is entitled, Israel, My Glory. Israel, My Glory. And, you know, in each of these issues, you know, there are testimonies of Jews in Israel and other places who have put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And this is what Isaiah is prophesying. Again, verse 25 and following, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You know what God is saying? God is saying, I'm in the business of saving souls, both Jews and Gentiles. Now see, God is forming one body made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And this one body is the church. Gentiles who trust Jesus become part of God's church. Jews who trust Jesus become part of God's church. There's one body, one family of God, and that is the church. There's not a church for the Jews, and there's not a church for the Gentiles. No, there's one body. One church made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. Now, Paul calls this the great mystery. And I want to read just what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. 
He says, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. Don't say, God has brought us in, in his plan of salvation. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You know, chapter 9 is all about God's sovereignty, God's sovereign choice. But God never violates man's free will. Now, chapter 10, that's going to be all about man's free will. We're going to get into that next Sunday. But both God's sovereignty and man's free will are clearly taught in the Bible. Although we can't understand how it all fits together, it fits together perfectly in God's mind. I promise you that. I want to just end with two illustrations. First illustration is a railroad track. How many of you have stood on a railroad track and looked down that railroad track? How many? Okay, most of us have. Have you noticed that when you look down at that railroad track, there are two distinct rails? Two distinct rails, but as you look down, as you look way down, those two rails merge into one. You know, that's the way it is with God's sovereignty and man's free will. They seem to be poles apart, don't we? And we look at them and say, man, how, how does this fit together? I don't understand how this fits together. I don't. But, you know, it fits perfectly in God's mind. Perfectly in God's mind. The other illustration is, I'm sure you've heard many times, it's about the gate of heaven. You know, I believe with all my heart that when we, when we die and, or when God calls us home through rapture, when we, when we stand before Jesus Christ and as we prepare to walk through those pearly gates, on the top of that gate we'll read, Whosoever will, let him come. That's man's free will. Whosoever will, let him come. And as we pass through those pearly gates into the presence of God, and as we turn around, it will say on the other side, chosen before the foundation of the world. Folks, I can't figure that out. I don't try. I don't even want to. And you can't either. But I'm telling you, folks, there is a sovereign God And he's in control. And even though we can't understand how that fits with man's free will, God understands perfectly. We aren't called to figure it out. We're called to believe it. You know, a question that that people ask me from time to time, how do I know that God is calling me for salvation? How do I know if God's calling me for salvation? Oh, there's one way you can know for sure. Do you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit? See, the Bible says God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who convicts. He's the one who convinces us that we need Jesus, that we're lost and we need a Savior. Oh, if you feel that tug at your heart, that tug that is saying, trust Christ, trust Him, You need Him as your Savior. That's how you know 
that you're called. And you need to respond to him and say, yes, Jesus, I trust you as my Savior. I trust you as my Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth. And Heavenly Father, I just do pray, Lord, that if there be any in here today that has never trusted Christ, Lord, and if they feel that tug of the Holy Spirit saying, trust Christ. You're lost. You need Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would respond. They would respond. Because the called do respond. Lord, I pray that they will respond to you and put their trust in Jesus. Lord, I'm so thankful that you don't require us to understand it all just to believe it. We're thankful for that. And Lord, we thank you that we can just glory in your greatness. As we've sung already, you are a awesome, you are a great God. And we thank you for that. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.